Welcome to Trainers Talking Truths. This is an ISSA podcast dedicated to exploring the fitness industry and uncovering the whys and hows of personal training. To do that, we'll talk directly to the industry experts and certified trainers. We'll dig into fitness programming, business tactics, nutrition, and more. You'll even hear from current training clients who offer insight from the other side. We've got the fitness industry covered, so turn up the volume and enjoy the drive. Welcome back for another ISSA podcast, Trainers Talking Truths. It's your co-host, Jenny Liebel, here with uh, my favorite co-host, John Bauer. How are you? You've officially made it to the top. You are my favorite now. <laughs> well, thank you for that, first of all. And I'm always I'm always excited for these ones where we just get to talk some trainer stuff and talk about a little bit of research, have a little real talk at the end about you know some of the things that are really important and relevant and practical to uh, trying to live this life as a personal trainer and trying to succeed and, and find ways to improve yourself. So uh, it, it's, always, it's always great to talk to you about these things. I agree. And there's always so much research going on. So like, and the research, as we always kind of clarify, you have to take it with a grain of salt, right? Because it could be really interesting information, but then you actually read about the study and say it's, oh my goodness, it's only, you know, a 20 person data group. <laughs> or it's only college age males who have never done exercise before. Right. So they like the populations are like what they actually did to get the information might be a little not applicable to most people. So we always kind of preface that and we try and explain that in some of the studies. But there is some new stuff that they're learning or they're they're kind of evolving the information that we we know or we think we know, which I love to see. So, John, I picked some good ones today. I have three good research studies to reference today, and hopefully it's something that's of interest to not only you, but our listeners as well. Are you ready to dive into our lightning fitness facts of the day? Let's do it. All right. Now, by the way, guys, John does not know the answers to these. Um, he does not get these ahead of time, so his guess is just as good as yours. <laughs> All right. So, John, our first one. Kettlebells are becoming a more popular training implement. We know this. One research study found out that what aspect of a kettlebell swing can be used to progress the movement as it relates to things like progressive overload, like when we teach our personal trainers. So what part of a kettlebell swing can you actually use to progress it versus just the weight? You know, I was just about to say uh, the, the weight would be an obvious one, but um, uh, another aspect of it, you know, I guess maybe maybe the the direction that you're swinging or the stance that you're swinging in if you're trying to vary you know the stress that you're putting on your body because you can vary the stress you're putting on your body by not just doing the traditional uh kettlebell swing but by having kind of a staggered stance i don't know if that's right but that's the answer i'm going to go with i like where your head is at and you are close because this one study looked at something else that was very specific but you're not wrong and I, I point this out because um, some of my professional volleyball athletes, I have do lateral kettlebell swings, single arm, double arm, unilateral, bilateral, doesn't matter. Uh, if you have never seen that before, Google it, YouTube it. It's interesting. It's difficult too, because you've got to watch out for those knees. Otherwise you end up like Tanya Harding over here. But anyway, so this one study, John, actually was looking at swing height. So the height of the kettlebell that you're using. So this one got a little bit physics-y, <laughs> if you will, because it's a lot of motion. Um, but a recent study published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research wanted to look at how swing height specifically impacted the body because they specifically called out the fact that commercial kettlebells come in relatively large increments, which I was like, oh, 
when I was reading this, I was like, you are not wrong. It's like 10 or 12 pound jumps um, from one set of kettlebells up to the next one for a lot of them that are commercially available. So in terms of weight, that's a big jump. So what they looked at was the end of the backswing, which they termed the start breaking. So when it's down between your legs or between your knees or ankles or whatever, and the initial propulsion, so starting to move that bell, and at the end of the propulsion or the top of the kettlebell swings, and they used three different heights. So I'll kind of detail it, but of course, in the show notes, you guys can actually find this research if you want to check it out. Um, so the heights were based on the standing height of the, the individual and the acromion process, so at their shoulder joint. And they were either at that height of their acromion, 20% higher than that height, or 20% lower than that point. So three different heights that they looked at. They found that different end heights of the kettlebell swing had different biomechanical effects on the body, which is kind of a no-brainer. But we can use that information to understand that increasing the height of a swing can actually be viewed as a progression along with increasing the speed of movement or the volume of repetitions, the angle of movement, et cetera, like you mentioned, not just the weight. So for us, practically, when we're using kettlebells or teaching people how to use kettlebells, this also means that we can work for a standardized or consistent swing height. That's going to increase the acute demands, right? So John, I want you to always get it to right here at this height, right? Maybe you put your hand up or have them tap it to something, right? So that can make it more of a challenge or we can vary the height with each repetition. That's going to change the variation each round or each rep um, and change the way that it impacts the body. They also discussed some of the physics of the swing, like how the height at the top of the swing actually impacted the braking velocity at the bottom. Duh, right? It's moving farther. And the biomechanics of the change of the lower end point of the swing and how the speed of the eccentric muscle action can impact adaptations like rate of force development, hypertrophy, and fascial length. So I know I just got a little bit nerdy, but this one is actually very, very physics-minded, was a cool research study. But what are your thoughts on that? What do you think? Well, it makes a, makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the things that's going to dictate the height that you're swinging the bell is the amount of drive you're using with your hips because it mm -hmm. is supposed to be a hip dominant movement. You do see the arms and the kettlebell swinging back and forth, but what's creating all that force is supposed to be the hips. So if you're swinging it higher, then that leads me to believe that you're driving harder with the musculature through your hips, which then makes sense with all that progressive overload. And then on the flip side of it, if it's going higher, you know, what goes up must come down, right? And if yeah. it's higher, that means as it's coming down, it's got greater velocity times that weight, uh, which means you're dealing with more force on the bottom half of the uh, of the swing as well in order to get it back up there. So it make, makes a lot of sense that swing height uh, would be a major determining factor in how we can progressively overload this movement. Yeah. So I love this one. And if you have not really played around with even, not even the angles of swings, like John was talking about, but the height of a kettlebell swing, try it, right? Try a moderate weight, try an average swing where you stop at your shoulders. What is that called, John? The Russian kettlebell swing, right? Not mm -hmm. German, right? Okay, I was like, German, Russian, Russian. The Russian kettlebell swing where you stop at shoulder height, right? Straight out in front, perpendicular to your body versus the American swing, which comes all the way overhead. Not only what that does to you at your shoulders to have to break and stop that kettlebell above your head, bottoms up, that is a hard position to hold, um, but then also how it impacts your core to be holding a load over your head like that. And then of course, the momentum of the swing, it's very different. Um, so I love that they explored this and it's, it's super interesting that we don't necessarily have to add weight to the swing. Let's vary the height or vary the direction that we're moving it and change the way that we're impacting the body. Plus, I, I also would, would you agree, John, that kettlebells are a really 
I hate using this term, but a functional piece of equipment. Like you can move in all directions with a kettlebell safely. Yeah, functional and maybe versatile is the word you're yeah. looking for. Uh, because you can just have a couple of kettlebells. I have a 16, a 24, and a 36 here in this room with me. Um, that's kgs, by the way. Um, and they serve they serve different purposes. But yeah, and and changing the stance, changing the direction, doing the lateral swings that you were talking about are such great tools and great ways to get your body to experience force in a lot of different directions, which is what the world does to us. So it makes sense that we train in that way. A couple of friends of the podcast and, and uh, past guests, Cliff Harsky and, and John Wolf, are great examples of people who are using the kettlebell in a lot of non-traditional ways. Love it. Love it. Cool. So I liked that one. I wanted to share. All right. My next one, very relevant these days. So my next one for you, John, what class of drugs are they starting to find or they're saying based on some research can be used among several other uses to treat alcohol use disorders? So think of some some stuff that's popular. We're in the beginning of 2024 right now. What are some some classes of drugs that we hear a lot about? Ooh, you are definitely out of my wheelhouse here um, (laughs) in terms of classifying the different drugs that are out there. And this is to treat alcohol use disorders. I'm just going to take a wild guess. I'm just going to say NSAIDs or anti-inflammatories. Ah, good guess. Good guess. But actually, they are doing more and more research on these GLP-1s. So these are those drugs that were originally, they're injectables that were originally made to treat diabetes, but they found a side effect, a positive side effect of weight loss. And now they're being marketed like crazy for weight loss. So Mongiorno, um, Trisepatide, Semaglutide, right? So I'm just naming off some brands and some names, but hopefully those start to ring a bell. So GLP-1s is the class of these drugs. So it's actually estimated that around 5% of Americans over the age of 12 struggle with excess alcohol consumption. When I read that in the study, John, I was like, wait, what? 5% of people over 12, they specified, yeah, yeah, right? Your face right now, over 12, not over 21, over 12 struggle with alcohol abuse or consumption. I had no idea. So a little investigative work out of Virginia Tech that was published in Scientific Reports has identified a trend that a lot of people taking these GLP-1s like semaglutide and manjuro um, often reported reduced cravings for alcohol. Um, and as a reduce, uh, as a result, they reduced their alcohol consumption. So interesting because we know that alcohol is addictive, right? So it affects our brain chemistry. We can crave it. And they were having reduced cravings. Now, I did want to call it a couple details about this study because the air quotes data is a little bit subjective and self-reported. They did call out that much of this data was pulled from there's over 14,000 users um, in a community or a couple communities on Reddit that they pulled from. 153 participants who are self-reported from other media platforms, and many of the users that they found were specifically female and Caucasian. Um, And they reported that the data was not necessarily objectively measured, meaning like a group of scientists went around and collected all this data. It was reported by these people. Okay, they asked them a couple questions and they sent in their responses. Um, This all just means that the data-driven research more is needed um, to make sure that these drugs actually do that in the brain as far as help with addictive treatments uh, and such. But the fact is that so many people were reporting these side effects is kind of interesting Um, because after all, that's how they figured out that these drugs were effective for weight loss in a lot of places. And they're still understanding the mechanisms of how they impact weight loss um, or specifically people's hunger and satiety signals 
And then they're also, right, John, finding a whole bunch of side effects, especially with overuse or long-term use of these drugs when you don't actually have the original condition of diabetes. What are your thoughts? What do you think? Well, this, this is an interesting one, and it does make sense to me. I have a family member that, um, that used Manjaro or uses Manjaro and uh, with great success, you know, as far as the weight loss part. And the way it was described to me was uh, that she felt like all the thoughts in her head about food had kind of disappeared. Uh, so to me, that means the cravings for food. And if we're mm -hmm. going to relate that to, to alcohol, it would make sense then that you know, the a possible side effect would be not just reduced cravings of intake of food, but reduced cravings for intake of, of alcohol. Uh, so, so wow, like what a positive side effect that can be, especially if it happened to be the case that this person also had an issue, uh, not just with, uh, with intaking food, but with intaking alcohol. So uh, interesting to, to take note of that, as it does seem to make sense uh, for me, at least anecdotally, uh, from what I've heard in in this one family member that's used Manjaro and 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 said that they uh, just didn't have all that noise in their head anymore about food. Yeah, and way to connect some dots, John, because you're absolutely correct. Um, sugar and fat and salt, like those, can all be addictive as well, depending on the quantities that we consume. And you're absolutely right. People, my husband takes Trisepatide. Don't tell him I told you that because I hate that he does it. But guys, don't try and tell people what to do with their lives. If he wants to do it, it's, it's his choice. I support him and I will also buy healthy food, but he takes that. And yeah, he said, he's just never hungry, right? He doesn't think about food. He's not craving anything. I ask him, Hey, do you want his favorite thing ever, John milk duds? And he's like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Do you want to go to dairy queen? He, John, I've been married to this man for almost a year now. And we've been together for six years. Never except for one time. Has he ever declined dairy queen? And he only, he told me afterwards he declined it because he wanted to prove to me that he doesn't need it every time. <laughs> But it's hard to turn he, down a blizzard, right? Yeah, he never turns down a blizzard. But lately, he's been like, "No, nah, I'm good." I'm like, "What? Are you okay? Do you do you need to lay down?" <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I thought that one was interesting, especially because these drugs are kind of top of mind for a lot of people, and there are a lot of people out there using them, good, bad, or indifferent. It, it's up to them at the end of the day. Um, but as fitness professionals, we are coming across a lot of clients who will be on these or have questions about them. So it's kind of nice to keep up with the research and at least be able to speak intelligently about them. All right, John, I've got one more. We're going to end this with a little bit of girl talk. I think this will apply. You have a long-term girlfriend and you've been married before. Like we get it. We all know women if you aren't one. So I think we'll be good here. So this one applies whether you're a woman or not, but if you train females, especially let's listen up on this one. There's no shortage of information out there that for women as far as training, nutrition, and supplementation, but specifically around their menstrual cycle. Um, do you think that there is any validity to a lot of the information out there? So this is kind of just a general question for you. Like, do you think that we should be really focused in on training, nutrition, et cetera, around our menstrual cycle? What are your thoughts? Uh, so, so anecdotally, I, I feel like I have to say yes, uh, because I've, you know, experienced in my in my own life, in my own relationships where it, it 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 did seem to be something that had to be planned for or maybe even planned around, uh, especially if there was some specific training going on or or some um some some you know focused exercise programs going on. It was something that had to be taken into account. So so yeah, anecdotally. And then scientifically, yeah, there there is plenty of research out there that kind of shows what 
the effects of the menstrual cycle can have on a person in terms of energy focus. Uh, and those are those are major determining factors in whether or not you get up and go to the gym or or have a good workout. I, for me, for me, even it's it's energy and focus uh, oftentimes that really determines the type of workout that I have. So, so yeah, I, I I certainly think there's validity to this. Yeah, and I would agree with a lot of things you're saying too. And they talk a lot about our ability to handle strain depending on where your hormone levels are, your ability to recover from high strain, for example. And we'll talk about some devices here when we talk about this one. But so the answer is maybe, but it's not as much like there's not as much support for this as we think. It's interesting because I do hear about it a lot as well. Like we have courses that talk about it. Um, I've done a lot of learning about uh, how hormones, both in men and women, by the way, men have cycles of hormones. It's just not they don't bleed. Right. And it's not the same hormones. So let me explain. So there was a study out of McMaster University in Melbourne, Australia. And they're calling for more high-quality research on the impacts of perform- on performance, physical fitness, and physiology as it relates to the female menstrual cycle. Here, here, we need to know more. We need to ask more questions. So the biggest things that they call out in this study that I'm sharing with you guys um, is that hormone levels can vary substantially from woman to woman, absolutely, and within the same female from cycle to cycle. Right. Not every cycle is exactly the same amount of days and everything goes up and down at the same intervals. It can change. Right. And of course, there's lots of factors that impact that stress, nutrition, sleep, right? All these things, um, physical ailments, right? Um, these can all change our cycle from month to month as well. So the research, the reviews, the meta-analyses that this team did, they found little to no difference in generally speaking, in exercise results of females across the stages of their menstrual cycle phase. And they examined carbohydrate utilization, muscle growth, and even blood vessel function. And they really found that there wasn't much variance. So I think that's interesting. Again, more research is needed, but they did do some research reviews and meta-analysis, which means they looked at a lot of the stuff that's already out there. So when we think about this one practically, um, this is giving evidence that we should perhaps maybe focus less on the phase of the cycle, potentially, right, that the female is in related to how they can or cannot take on strain or recover. And instead, we want to focus on just simply creating individualized training that suits the individual. And you made a great call out, John, as a female, like there's certain times during our cycle, especially during your period where a lot of people don't feel like they want to do anything, right? They're in, they're uncomfortable. They have cramps. They're tired or fatigued, right? They didn't sleep well. They're scared because they don't want to go out into the world while they are bleeding, right? I've been there. Um, so I think that's the kind of stuff that we really want to take into account when we're working with a female client. Um, is how are they feeling? Are they up for this today? Or are we just pushing beyond what we can physically and mentally handle? Okay. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think though what you said there at the end is, is um, practical advice for every client that you would have is, yeah. uh, you know, remember our clients are not science experiments and they're not math equations. They're people. And sometimes they feel a certain way and sometimes they feel great and sometimes they don't feel great. And one of the best ways to to figure that out for yourself is to simply ask, right? The science might say that they're not supposed to be, or that they that they should feel okay, but their perceived exertion on that day may be a whole lot higher because of some discomfort or whatever they've got going on in their life. This is why we treat this as a people job. And this is why we ask questions like, how are you doing today? How's your body feeling today? Uh, how's your sleep been lately? All of these play a role in how a person is perceiving how they feel in that day. Uh, so despite what the, the science might say, 
don't forget that this is a people job and we better ask these, these folks how they are feeling so we can make adjustments based on them and not based on studies that we just read. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that, the way you call that out. And I even want to bring up like John, those of you guys who know us, we, you know, that um, John and I wear whoops. Um, he used to wear a whoop. John has an aura ring now and he loves it. <laughs> so plug for aura plug for whoop. Um, we're not sponsored by them or anything like that. We just like the devices. Um, but I noticed John whoop recently added a menstrual cycle insights section. So I'm assuming that if you're a male, if you click, like click the box in your profile that you're a male, this isn't even offered to you. But as a female, it like popped up a couple months ago and I was like, sure, why not? So it requires that you log when you're, you know, on your period so it can kind of estimate and track your cycles. And of course, the more data it has, so the longer you track that, the more precise it can become. But again, if it varies, it might not always be right. Um, but it gives you insight into like the amount of strain that you're primed to take on or the amount of recovery you should be getting based on the phase of your menstrual cycle. And I thought it was interesting. I do. I have glanced at it a couple of times, but I don't really lean on it. Right. Because, again, it's it's subjective and it's based on how I feel. And do I feel up to this? Do I feel like I have the energy and the mental fortitude to get through what I'm trying to get through or not, regardless of where I'm at in that cycle? So every now and again, I do peek at it because I think it's interesting. But I noticed that the insights that it gives you, air quotes, are a little bit vague because they have to be. <laughs> do you know of any other devices or things like the Apple Watch or your Aura Ring that have stuff like that, too? Yeah, like kind of peripherally, I'm, I'm aware that uh, this is the case with a lot of trackers. And then, you know, the, the questions I would have is just like with any anything that gives you information is what are we doing with the information? Yeah. And in this case, maybe it affects the way that we're going to program our training. Uh, but for the user, it may allow them to do things a little bit differently in terms of how they're going to prepare for sleep, because maybe their sleep becomes impaired during these times. Maybe their, their their cravings for food change during these times. So maybe they got to plan ahead for, for those sorts of things. So if anything, maybe the the, the information that you get out of these trackers uh, can help you to just kind of plan your life accordingly. That's That's really what they should help you to do. It's not just a uh, check-in every day to say, oh, yesterday was good or yesterday was bad. You, sh you should start to see trends and then start to be able to plan ahead so that maybe you can get around having what would have been a bad day and turn it into a better day with better sleep and better training, et cetera, because you're using the information effectively. I love it. Well stated. Well stated. Thanks. So guys, head to the show notes if you want to see the references for these or you want to get a little bit nerdy with the kettlebell swings and stuff. So some pretty good research that I shared with you guys. Feel free to check it out. We'd love to hear your comments. All right. So we just got through the science portion. That's the research. Now we're going to do a little bit of real talk as, as personal trainers. And uh, something that uh, you know keeps coming up in a lot of these podcasts uh, when we ask uh, a lot of professionals out there, uh, what, what, what should a trainer have in order to improve themselves? What, what's a great tools for, for a trainer to have in order to you know, see more success in the field, or just learn how to do the job well. And one thing that we hear over and over again is to find a mentor. And uh, having a mentor in our field, uh, it can offer a ton of benefits that contribute to personal and professional growth. So I've got a list here, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about each one uh, a little bit. But here are some of the advantages of having a mentor. And then we'll talk about maybe some of the ways in which you can find yourself one. Uh, but number one, knowledge and experience sharing. How great is that? You get to talk to someone who's been there and who's done that, 
who's done the job and has experience. And sometimes what you learn is not just the scientific experience, but the best ways to interact with different types of clients or or, or the best ways to, you know, uh, build up your clientele within that particular health club that you're working in. Sometimes when you go work somewhere, there's people who've been in the field for a long time that have a lot of insight and they have a lot of knowledge and being able to share that with you helps you to learn things that maybe you didn't even know you needed to learn and also can help you to avoid some of the mistakes that you would probably make. But luckily for you, you've got this mentor that helps you to avoid that mistake. So knowledge and experience sharing is number one. Number two, just guidance and advice. It's nice to have someone to bounce your ideas off of, right? It's nice to have someone there that can let you know that there maybe is a better way to do what you're doing. It's a great thing to, to have that. Otherwise, you're just kind of guessing. And, and some of us are, are pretty good at guessing or making educated guesses. But how nice is it when you can have someone there to make you feel more sure of yourself and more sure of the uh, of the choices you're making. So some guidance and some advice can go a long way. Uh, next up, career development. Uh, a lot of mentors can assist in, in career development by helping you to devise some strategies and maybe helping you to set some goals for yourself on how to improve yourself, how to make the right choices in terms of what education or continuing education to take. That Those can be great pieces of advice that you can get from, from a mentor. So again, career development is yet another one. Networking opportunities. A mentor can offer uh, maybe their network to you. And uh, that's something that uh, has happened to me is I've had a great mentor and actually we're going to be interviewing him later today who kind of introduced me to, to his network. And that helped me to now have a broader network for myself in the field. And one thing I can tell you for sure is that networking or just having friends in the field, if you want to call it that, is, is a great thing to have if for, uh, if for nothing else than to have other mentors or other people that can answer questions for you. But it also opens up opportunities um, in the field as well, especially when you're looking for uh, different jobs or, or ways to kind of rise up in the profession. Uh, a good mentor can help you to just build your confidence. It's nice when a, a mentor is there to tell you, hey, you did that right good job. Because sometimes you might do something and you think you did all right, but maybe not. Who knows? So it's great to have a mentor there that can help you just feel good about the choices that you are making. Confidence goes a long way in this job and really in any job. Uh, and if you have someone there that can help you to feel more sure of yourself, that, that to me, that's a big deal. Skill enhancement. Some of, these, some of these mentors are just more skilled at being a personal trainer than you. So how nice is it to be able to learn from, from someone in person? Uh, the thing about a lot of courses, including the courses we have here at ISSA, is these are basically theory courses. You're learning the theory of how to do all of these things. But when you have a mentor, you get to take all this information and actually apply it. Uh, so that's that's a big one, too, is because you get to see someone and in person helping you to do the things that you know in theory and actually put it into practice. Uh, just two more here. Professional development. So a mentor can guide you in setting and achieving professional development goals. And that might be enhancing your skills outside of just exercise science, right? Sometimes it makes sense to understand some uh, some leadership, some management, some finance, some business savvy if you're going to open up your own business. So professional development. And then lastly, just some perspective and, and some objectivity. A mentor can provide some perspective on your career and your decisions and give you some honest and objective feedback. At least a good mentor will do that for you. And this will help you to see situations 
from from a different angle. And you know, one one example I can give is there was a point in time where I was feeling like, you know, how come I'm not getting more opportunities? Uh, I I just couldn't understand. And then a good mentor of mine actually said to me, "Well, no one knows who you are." And I didn't even think of it that way for some reason. He just said, no one knows who you are. Why would anyone give you an opportunity if they don't know who you are? And that's where the whole networking came into play. And then wouldn't you know it, he was right. A lot of opportunities came into play. So I'll just repeat them all real quickly. And then Jenny will talk about them. So good mentor can offer knowledge and experience sharing, guidance and advice, career development, networking opportunities, confidence building, skill enhancement, professional development, and perspective and objectivity. Jenny, what do you think? So I really love all of these. And, and as you're going through these, I was thinking of my first mentor, who was my very first personal trainer who trained me for six months, 16 years ago now, John, when I lost 60 pounds. I worked with him for six months, named Nate Thompson. I shouted him out on the podcast before. Shout out to Nate. Um, still friends with him. Still talk with him. Ask him questions. Pick his brain. Because he's worked in all kinds of different um, situations with all kinds of different clients. And it's so nice because this is one of the industries that has a history. There's a lot of people that have been doing this for a long time. And when you get in front of those people and they can offer you insights and say, hey, let me help you avoid the pitfalls that I had or the mistakes that I made, right? Or the missteps that I made that caused me like loss of business or loss of income or like whatever it was that caused me heartache. Let me tell you what I did and how I fixed it and did it better so that you don't have to make that mistake. If somebody's offering that to you, especially if there's some mentorships, right? You might have to pay for some you don't. But if somebody's offering that to you, whether it's paid or not, like take it. Why wouldn't you? If you want to get your business going and you want to start like getting something rolling and build something, why wouldn't you want the shortest path from A to B while you can still be the most effective? And that's what it is when you find a mentor. But also because there is so much variety with the people that we all work with, the situations that might come up, how we do this, that, and the other. There's no one way to do anything in fitness. It's really nice sometimes to hear how somebody else does things and then make it your own. So I love that we're talking about this. And I love that we continue to talk about mentorship and finding mentors because I also see people who really, really love fitness, John, and they do it for a while, but they don't have any guidance. They don't have anybody helping them. And six months, eight months, 12 months later, they're no longer in the industry and now they're doing real estate or something else. No dig on real estate, but it's not what that person really wants to do, right? So you can make this a long-term career and we're trying to just give you all the pieces to help you do that. Yeah, another thing about a mentor, I mean, they, they can come, uh, you know, in all shapes and sizes, ages, et cetera. And although some of them turn into long-term friendships, I'm, I'm still great friends with one of my uh, original mentors. Some of them, sometimes they're just great people that come into your life for, for a short while and, and they're able to teach you a few things or offer you some advice. And I've had plenty of those. And in some cases, uh, some game-changing advice with people that I wouldn't call my best friends. If we saw each other, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd say hello, probably give each other a hug. But in the, in the time in which we were doing some work together, I was able to get some advice that really helped. So a mentor is not always a, a long-term relationship with someone. Sometimes it's just someone that happens to be in your life uh, for a time. And, you know, what you want to do is make the most of it. Learn from someone that knows things that you don't know or has experience that you don't have. And you might just get some advice uh, that is something that can really change your career for the better. Also, once in a while, one of these people will give you advice. And it's the same advice you've heard from friends or family, but you're hearing it from a respected professional. And all yes. of a sudden, now it makes sense. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, welcome to my life coaching children. <laughs> Their mom and dad tell them the same stuff that I tell them, but they listen to me. <laughs> I love it. Um, so John, one thing we always get questions about though, when it comes to mentorship is A, how do I find a mentor? And B, what do I say to them? Right? We kind of put them on this pedestal, which we should, right? To some degree. But what do we say to them? How do we approach them? Like what, what are some opportunities or some possible conversations that could this could look like? Yeah. So I'll give two answers. And the first one I'll, I'll do really quickly. There are paid mentorships uh, that you can take part in. And I, uh, I had one in particular that I took part in that was a game changer for me and introduced me to so many great people and, you know, really kind of became the backbone of getting myself further into the education side uh, of this industry. Uh, so there are paid mentorships. Just do your homework and just make sure that you have, for me, it was important that I had some sort of relationship with at least one of the people who was teaching the mentorship. You can just Google fitness mentorships and find all kinds of people who are willing to take your $10,000. I would say do your homework first before you choose <laughs> one of those. Um, but in terms of just finding someone locally, you know, if your passion is to really be in this industry and to really make your mark and to be in it for a long time and to improve yourself, then it makes sense to start to try to find others in that in your personal training or fitness community locally. And now if you work somewhere where there's personal trainers, then maybe that personal trainer is there. Maybe it's your manager. I will also say maybe not. Maybe not. And, and that's okay too. Like it's not like there's just these great mentors just standing on every corner waiting, waiting for you. Sometimes you have to be patient and they'll they'll pop up at the right time. But you may be working with that person. So just know that that uh, is is possibly a way to find yourself a, a mentor. And, you know, you don't have to say, hey, will you be my mentor? You know, I, I, I don't think I've ever done that. But have I asked lots of questions of people that I knew knew more things than me? Absolutely. So you may you may end up working with them. But on the on the grander scheme, you know, finding the, the local personal trainer or, or fitness professional community is so much easier now than it used to be because of social media. And I think you can kind of kind of key into some of the locals who are out there, some of the leaders um, in, in your industry, especially locally. And maybe you can start to build a, a connection with some of them, you know, whether it be through social media or catching a workout with some of them. I know this was some of the ways in which I was able to do it uh, in my past was, you know, doing that thing that we all used to do was go outside, go be around people, and in some cases, build some friendships and, and, and get this mentorship out of... Um, out of some of the professionals that are around you. My advice, though, is that you want to get advice from, from people that have been doing it for a while and, and maybe have some, a good level of education under their belt and that, and that you trust. And that's, that's something that, you know, I guess you'll have to build over time. Yeah, I agree. So when you, whether you know the person or not, what could a conversation look like when you, you approach them? So you said we don't necessarily say, will you be my mentor? But what, what do we say? Yeah, so some of the questions that I've asked in the, in, asked in the past that that helped me and, and in some cases i was asking pretty high level people in the fitness industry but my questions would more or less be like here's what i'm doing now here's where i want to be what do i have to do in order to get there and if some of that sounds familiar this is kind of the conversations we have with our clients you know they'll, they'll say here's where i am now here's where i want to be and they're asking you how do i get there yeah. so in much the same way i'm just asking this it's more just on a professional level and some of the answers I've gotten have been spend time and spend money on yourself. In other words, invest in yourself. In that way, if you spend time, money, and energy on yourself, that way you create separation between you and 
uh, other people in the field. In other words, your competitors. Because if if me and Jenny are just, hi, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a CPT, I'm a certified personal trainer, there's not much difference there uh, on paper anyway. But then if you start to say that I'm also a golf certified specialist, I'm a corrective exercise specialist, I've done a mentorship with a professional sports team, whatever the case may be, all of those things matter. And all those things help to create separation, not just on paper, but in the actual result that you're giving people. Uh, so when I, when I ask questions, I, I'm usually asking about things that I want to accomplish and their thoughts on how I might accomplish those things. And oftentimes it comes back to doing the work. I once asked a very prolific fitness writer, how do I get better at writing? And he told me, get up and write every day. And I was like, all right, okay. I was looking for the magic bullet, but there was, it was like, he, and, and he was right. Yeah, I mean, some things you just got to do over and over again in order to get better. Well, yeah, what you just said, John, does sound uh, very, very familiar. Our clients are looking for that magic bullet too. And sometimes it's a slow, steady process and it requires effort and focus and attention. So I appreciate that. And I love that you said that because the conversations that I've had with my mentors have been relatively indirect. Yeah, it's, hey, I love the way that you do this, or I really am interested in how you do that. Do you mind if I ask you some questions? Or do you mind if I shadow you? Do you mind if I follow you around a little bit and just kind of see what you do? Most people are going to be flattered and not say no, (laughs) right? So I know one of my trainers here in Arizona, um, Joe Valdez, shout out to PT by Joe. Um, He will take anybody who wants to come shadow him at his gym. And he owns a gym. It's a beautiful facility. It's a big indoor outdoor space. He rents it out to other trainers. He trains people in there. And he's uh, he's a big fixture in the bodybuilding community here in Arizona. And he always, every time I go in there, he's always got somebody new following him around. I'm like, who's that? Who's that you got? And he's like, oh, it's somebody who's working on their certification. In fact, they may have some questions for you, right? And then he refers them to me to ask questions about certifications or education. Um, but he's always helping people who want the help. And who are willing, he's like, if you can be here at 5 a.m. when I have my clients, you're welcome to be here. Happy to have you, right? I'll even give you a job cleaning up around here until you're ready to start training your own clients, right? A lot of people will help out, but no asking, no getty. Closed mouths don't get fed. So if you don't ask for help or specifically, like John said, say, hey, I want this is what I want to do. Here's where I'm at, right? If you're not specific in what you're asking for, if you just said, hey, I need some help, the average person is going to be like, yo, I don't have bandwidth for this. I don't have time for this, right? But if you ask for something specific, and especially if it's something that they're good at or known for, you better believe they're going to be able to give you a little bit more targeted advice. Yeah, and 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 one other thing too, you'd be surprised, depending on where you live, just just find a lot of the different fitness facilities around you, especially the ones that are, you know, locally owned, and and just go check them out. And you might be surprised what you find. I know there's there's one here in the Sacramento area owned by Mark Bell. And Mark Bell is kind of a celebrity now. Uh, but his gym was always kind of a, a free. You can walk in and you can learn from some of the best power lifters in the world on how to be a better power lifter. And I wouldn't have known that unless I was the type of person who just sought out what was going on in my local area and I was able to find them. So uh, just you know, sometimes you'd be surprised what's around you already. You just got to do a little, a little looking. I love it. So I'm going to offer you guys a challenge as we wrap up today. Uh, We will put in the chat 
uh, the link or the name of our Facebook group. We have a couple different Facebook groups. We'll put our general Facebook group in there. We encourage you to join it and come start a conversation about either you as a mentor, if you are one, or mentors that you have had and how they have helped you, what you learned, how you asked them for their help. We'd love to, to share this with more people because there's a lot of people who feel stuck or feel, feel like they need help. So if you've experienced uh, something great with a mentor or you are a mentor, we want to hear from you. So check that out. Come join us in that Facebook group and share your experience. Okay. That's what it's all about. Um, life is nothing if we don't leave anything behind. So let's leave something behind. I love it. John, any last words for our listeners today? This is a good one. Yeah. You know, just a last bit on this whole mentoring thing. It can be beneficial for both sides as well. There's nothing mm -hmm. that's going to make you understand something more than if you have to teach it to somebody. And uh, playing the role of mentor uh, to, to young trainers or, or young people can put you in a position where now they're looking at you for advice. And like I said, there's nothing uh, that's going to get you to understand information more than if you have to teach it to other people. Uh, so it can be beneficial to, to both parties. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. Um, so my takeaway from today, you guys, is uh, keep doing your research. Uh, understand that the research is evolving, not necessarily changing, but evolving. So stay up to date. Um, find some good sources, whether it's journals that you like, online resources that are credible, not Wikipedia. Um, but find some resources that you like and stay up to date with them. Don't be afraid to invest in yourself, like John just said. And when I'm talking about research, I'm talking about there are organizations like I'll call out the NSCA. I'm a member of the NSCA. Um, but they it's a couple hundred bucks a year and you get their journal articles and all the resources that come along with these other organizations. So don't be afraid to branch out and find other organizations as well that offer more information. Uh, but always be learning and always stay up to date. Um, it makes you a little bit more valuable in this industry as well. So long live fitness, long live your careers. We're glad you guys are here. Go back, re-listen, check out the show notes. But thanks for being here, guys. Go out there, do all the things. And above all, make good choices. We'll be talking to you soon. Yeah.